hppodcraft.com. Don't look now, John said to his wife, but there are a couple of old girls, two tables away, who are trying to hypnotise me. Laura, quick on cue, made an elaborate pretense of yawning, then tilted her head as though searching the skies for a non-existent aeroplane. Right behind you, he added. That's why you can't turn round at once. It would be much too obvious. Laura played the oldest trick in the world and dropped her napkin, then bent to scrabble for it under her feet, sending a shooting glance over her left shoulder as she straightened once again. She sucked in her cheeks, the first telltale sign of suppressed hysteria and lowered her head. They're not old girls at all, she said. They're male twins in drag. Her voice broke ominously, the prelude to uncontrolled laughter, and John quickly poured some more Chianti into her glass. That was the opening dialogue from Don't Look Now, a short story or novella by Daphne du Maurier, and it's a story we're covering here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon forward slash Witch House Media. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And uh, right away, I have to take some issue with this story. You know, when somebody calls prostitution the oldest profession in the world, I think, well, we can't know that for sure. I, you know, mm-hmm. I would guess cook, hunter, maybe hairdresser. But what? <laughs> prostitution is definitely within the realm of possibility. <laughs> and, you know, Lovecraft says the oldest emotion of mankind is fear. I think it's probably more like fear, but a little, I'm a little gassy, maybe that feeling. But it makes sense. It could be fear. In that opening... <laughs> Demarier says the oldest trick in the world is dropping a napkin so that you can look at some strangers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that does not seem right to me. I would think the oldest trick in the world is like hiding behind a rock and going boo. <laughs> or like just running up and punching somebody in the gut. That's a good trick. <laughs> Surprise! I don't think nobody played any tricks till the napkin was invented. I don't think it's a sound. No. So this, yeah. this book is basically like, just throw out the window. <laughs> Who was it that read that ridiculous hyperbole? That reader of ours is none other than Barbara Ford. Barbara Ford is the grandmother to my children, and yet she's not my mother. What? How is this possible? I, That's right. She's my mother-in-law. Ah, uh, don't look now. She's your mother-in-law. That's cool. I'm glad to have Barbara on the show. Daphne du Maurier is such a cool name. She's also Lady Browning. Although I don't think she ever used the title herself. No. But what do we know about this writer? Daphne du Maurier was born to a wealthy family in 1907. She was homeschooled along with her two sisters. She spent a lot of her youth traveling around Europe. She loved sailing and writing at an early age. Yeah, her parents were theater folks. Prominent actor-manager Sir Gerald du Maurier and actress Muriel Beaumont. Du Maurier met many prominent theater actors thanks to the celebrity of her father when she was a young child. Her grandfather also was a writer and a cartoonist for Punch. Her elder sister, Angela du Maurier, also became a writer and her younger sister Jean was a painter so quite an Ooh. artistic family and I think that their connections are what helped her get her start in publishing mm-hmm. uh, the writing that she was working on she was also a cousin of the Llewellyn Davies boys who you might know served as J.M. Barry's inspiration for the characters in Peter Pan Ah, so uh, yes. pretty illustrious family. Yeah, she felt that writing was her calling. So uh, when she was 20, she moved out to Cornwall and she was super into it. And she felt like Cornwall was her spiritual home. Now, Cornwall is kind of the southwest 
portion of the United Kingdom. Yeah, that's where pirates come from. Well, yes, that was because the actor who played Long John Silver in the film adaptation of Treasure Island did it with a Cornish accent. And then that is kind of what started the precedent of pirates talking with Cornish accent. I see. But as you know, pirates can be of any nationality and speak any language. It's such a beautiful occupation, piracy. (laughs) (laughs) But Daphne was super into... Uh, the outdoors and country life. She loved being out there with nature, living off the land. Her first novel, The Loving Spirit, was published in 1931 when she was only 24 years old. She was married the following year, but that did not stop her writing. In 1938, she published her most famous book, Rebecca. Rebecca was an immediate hit, sold nearly 3 million copies between 38 and 65, and it was adapted in 1940 by Alfred Hitchcock. It was actually Hitchcock's first American project, the first film he made under contract with David O. Selznick. In the movie, you've got Laurence Olivier as the brooding aristocratic widower, Maxim de Winter, and Joan Fontaine as the young woman who becomes his second wife. I think Rebecca is dead before the movie even starts. Mm-hmm. It won two Academy Awards, got Best Picture and Best Cinematography. Wow. 11 nominations. It was a pretty big hit, critically acclaimed. Her story, uh, The Birds, was also adapted by Alfred Hitchcock for his film by the same name. Uh, I actually watched it again recently mm-hmm. because Heather had never seen it before. I, and I should read the book, actually, because it's a pretty terrifying concept. But the movie, it's just all I see are the birds getting thrown at Tippy Hedren. And <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, it's not scary. It's a fun movie, but it's not scary. De Maurier wrote dozens of books, fiction as well as nonfiction. But she died in 1989 at the age of 81. Uh, some of her other books that were adapted to film were Jamaica Inn, Frenchman's Creek, Hungry Hill, and My Cousin Rachel. Jamaica Inn? Mm-hmm. No, I was stuck outside. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> you should take the take that on the road. Done. That's the opening bit, my five minute set. <laughs> this story, Don't Look Now, was much later than I had imagined. It was published in nineteen seventy one in a collection called Not After Midnight. Yes, it's uh much more recent than the rest of her works. It was adapted into a nineteen seventy three independent British film starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. I actually just saw it recently. I I've been wanting to see it for years. Yes. There was a show on cable like ten or fifteen years ago called A Hundred Scariest Movie Moments. Do you remember that? Yes. It's like a clips show. And it's exactly what it says it was. It was just counting down these movie moments, had clips, and then celebrities and filmmakers being interviewed about them or making jokes. It was great Halloween season programming. Yeah. Because yeah. it was on over and over over the course of a day, so you just sort of have it on in the background right. and wander by and catch whatever wherever they were in the list. Don't Look Now was on there pretty highly ranked, yeah. I think, unless I'm confusing it with Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's pretty well regarded as a horror film. And strangely, I never heard of it before. I thought I knew horror. I was like, I never heard of this. And I saw it was like, I think in the AFI's top 100 horror films or something like that. It's like number eight on the 100 best British films of all time. Too. Yeah. I, I think since it came out, it's risen in reputation. The scariest moment in it for that clip show, I think it was the thing that happens at the end, but I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, that's how I became aware of it right. from watching that show, because I, I didn't know about it before that either. And I'd seen almost all the other movies that they showed in that clip show, except that one. Of course, every time I thought about watching it, I'd pick up the you know the DVD case and it would say, don't look now. And I go, okay, I can do this later. <laughs> See, I can, make, I can make some dad jokes, too. Uh, so even though I hadn't read the story yet this weekend, I said, I'm going to rent it and watch it. You did the same thing. I did the exact same thing because you said that this was supposed to be a good horror film. Check it out. And usually I read the stories 
first, and then I watched mm. the movie. But I'm going, you know what? I'm going to watch this movie first. And it is a weird movie. It's well, I think it's weird, but also weird in the weird sense. Like it's really it's, it's weird in all senses of the word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it does a really good of setting this mood that everything is slightly off and unreal. It almost has kind of a Lynchian feel to it. It does. The editing is really artsy. I think that that director Nicholas Rogue, Nicholas Roeg, I don't know how to mm-hmm. pronounce his last name. That was something that he was known for. The editing style in there. Mm. Very unsettling and montaging and jumps around. The sound design is kind of unsettling. And really unsettling, yeah. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily an enjoyable movie. I have to admit it was slow. Really slow. A, a little difficult to get through, but it was effective. There were some pretty creepy moments. And what surprised me the most, because you then read the book before I did. Yeah. And then I talked to you about it and you said, oh, no, it's a really faithful adaptation. And I thought, no way. Yeah. Because the movie was so strange. I just assumed there was a little nugget from the short story in there. And then the director kind of and screenwriters had just kind of built around it. But nope. Uh, <laughs> no, then I read this and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's a really, really accurate adaptation. The ending of it with I'm, I'm not going to go into detail right now, but the ending of it is so out there that I thought for sure it had to be some wacky filmmaker, not the ending from the story. But no, <laughs> yeah, me too. it is the ending of the story. I mean, we read a lot of these stories. You kind of know where they're going. I did not know where this was going. That totally pulled the carpet out from underneath me, <laughs> reeling from it, to be honest. I don't <laughs> understand. It's pretty strange, but it feels like this story, for the most part, has its own internal logic that's about, it's like a psychic thriller. Yeah. And then there's another story that's happening in another part of the city. Mm-hmm. And that story just runs into this one at the end somehow. Yeah. You know, and we never heard details about that other story. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been hinted at. So that, in a way, is kind of cool. I mean, it certainly broke my expectations. Yeah. Also, I've just always been a fan of Naked Donald Sutherland. Who is not? It begins in Venice, Italy, where a young couple, Laura and John, are in a restaurant talking smack about other patrons. Immediately, I was pulled into this because this is something my wife and I have done on many occasions. (laughs) Usually along the lines of, oh, look, that's poor man's Brad Pitt hanging out with Steve Buscemi's handsome brother. (laughs) Yeah, the celebrity dime store celebrity game is pretty fun. Extra (laughs) points if you can hit a really specific combination like, hey, here comes Elton John Frankenstein. Don't look. And it's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, that's the best. Anyway, back to the story. At the table behind Laura, there's a pair of old ladies, twins, uh, that are sitting and enjoying a meal. One of them Mm. seems to be staring at John. They have a number of theories, everything from their criminals in disguise to uh, that they're retired school teachers on holiday. After Laura drops the napkin, the oldest trick in the the world, and she (laughs) checks them out, she says they're male twins in drag, maybe. Obviously, this being the 1970s, they aren't very culturally sensitive about uh, the trans community. (laughs) I think, I mean, they're insinuating that these are some kind of thieves who cross-dress as a means of committing their crimes. They're criminals doing the sights of Europe, changing sex at each stop. (laughs) (laughs) Why? (laughs) There's been a lot, well, I've seen some Law & Order episodes where, you know, somebody was getting away with a crime because they cross-dressed. Really? they were looking for a woman the whole time, and they're like, wait a minute. You know, they go into the guy's apartment and there's wigs and dresses. I know who did this. Oh. Laura concludes with what's probably true. She says there are a couple of pathetic old retired schoolmistresses on holiday who saved up all their lives to visit Venice. They come from some place with a name like Wallabanga in Australia, and they're called Tilly and Tiny. Mm-hmm. So the couple are even a little cruel in their descriptions of these women. But it is a smart way to start the story because, you know, just as John and Laura are talking smack about other customers, we're eavesdropping on them in this private conversation. And it's those kinds of private jokes the couples share. They know nobody else is going to hear this. This is just for their own personal. Yeah. And it makes us feel like we're part of the couple as well. Of course. Yeah. So the old lady uh, who's not staring gets up and goes to the toilet. Laura goes as well, mostly on the, with the intent of trying to find out what this lady's story is. She's not going to interrogate her or anything. She's just going to kind of spy. She says, I simply must not laugh 
And whatever you do, don't look at me when I come back, especially if we come out together. After Laura leaves, John thinks about how good it is to see Laura having a good time. She's been very distraught over the recent death of their young daughter, Christine. They also have a son who's slightly older, but he's back at uh, boarding school in England. The doctors told him that, you know, she'll be fine. Give her time. Anyway, you're both still young. There'll be others. Another daughter. He thinks another child, another girl, would have her own qualities, a separate identity. She might even introduce hostility because of this very fact. A usurper in the cradle, in the cot, that had been Christine's. A chubby, flaxen replica of Johnny, not the little waxen, dark-haired sprite that had gone. Nice bedside manner on this doctor. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, your kid's dead, but you'll have another one. Eh. I mean, that's not quite how it works, you know? What a, no. what a jerk. It mentions that she has had meningitis, but that's all we really get from it. Yeah, they they draw, that was one thing they departed from in the film where they made that a little more dramatic. It's a drowning that opens up the movie. Yeah. It's also that recent death trope that's in some horror. I know that we've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Parent getting over the loss of a child goes on a holiday or renovates an old house, trying to put some tragedy behind them. You know, it always puts the characters in a more sensitive place where they might be open to supernatural events. The Mm -hmm. rats in the walls, the movie The Changeling, etc. The other old lady is still staring at John and he decides that he's going to stare right back at her. But she doesn't look away and this makes him really uncomfortable so he looks away. (laughs) Uh, He realizes that Laura is taking a long time and he's starting to get a little annoyed with her. After 15 minutes, the other twin returns from the bathroom and they get their coats and then they leave. And he notices that the toilet sister is helping up the staring sister. And he thinks maybe she's got arthritis. John, uh, an increased... Toilet sister. Well, she was the one in the toilet. Yeah. And then there's the one that was staring. I mean, how, how else? They're twins. Not to be confused with the, the 80s supergroup, the Toilet Sisters. John is in increasingly bad mood. He decides that he's just going to go back to the hotel without Laura. And he's a little drunk as well because he's been yeah. pounding the wine. But as he gets up to leave, she comes out of the toilet. She has this strange look on her face. Uh, she's elated. She tells John that Christine, their daughter, isn't dead, that she's there with them. And he thinks that she might be having some kind of nervous breakdown. It's quite wonderful, she said slowly. The most wonderful thing that could possibly be. You see, she isn't dead. She's still with us. That's why they kept staring at us, those two sisters. They could see Christine. He tries to calm her, but she's just not listening. She's like, look, no, this is a good thing. She says that the women were Scottish sisters. And they just, uh, the one that was in the toilet just turned to her and told her that they could see the little girl sitting between her and John laughing. When she told Laura, Laura almost passed out because she's telling her that, you know, she saw her dead daughter. How does she know that she even had a daughter? How does she know these things? So it must be true. The toilet sister says the vision was so strong that the staring sister knew that they just had to tell Laura. And Laura, of course, believes that she takes it hook, line, and sinker. Mm -hmm. He comments how ridiculous it is because Christine wouldn't actually be out this late at night. She'd be in bed. So, like, she wouldn't have been with him on this meal. But that's the way that he's kind of seeing things. Kind of a realist when it comes to this kind of type of psychic business. So John tries to calm her, but she says she's not upset. She's very happy. Laura tells John that the ladies are from Edinburgh and that one went blind a few years earlier. So that's why she was staring. She wasn't staring. She's blind. So when he stared back, of course it didn't work. She can't see him. Yeah. But now that she's blind, she can see the psychic world better than ever. Like she's more in tune with it. And it says that she also studied the occult her whole life, which I was like, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> These sister characters are pretty neat. Yeah, I want to know more about them. I mean, there's we only get little hints and uh, there could be a whole series of books about these two. There's not, but there could be. Get to work. <laughs> so John notes that she's not hysterical, but she seems genuinely happy. You know, like just kind of crying 
a little bit with joy. This scene was done really well in the movie, the fainting. And you, you actually get to see the conversation in the bathroom. And in that, they move the blind woman in there. But both of them telling her, and even the way that John reacts to her in the story and in the in the movie, he really cares about his wife. Oh, yeah. Privately dismissive of these things. But he's he's not even totally skeptical no. about the psychic powers, but he's worried that she's being taken advantage of. Yeah. However, he can see that it's made her happy. These are likable characters. Yeah. And if this sudden belief was going to keep her happy, he couldn't possibly begrudge it. But he wished all the same it hadn't happened. There was something uncanny about thought reading, about telepathy. Scientists couldn't account for it. Nobody could. And this is what must have happened just now between Laura and the sisters. So the one who'd been staring at him was blind. That accounted for the fixed gaze which somehow was unpleasant in itself. Creepy. Oh, hell, he thought. I wish we hadn't come here for lunch. So she pulls herself together and saying that that they have to go to the cathedral since they came to the Torcello and they leave. They go to the cathedral and they look at the statue of the Virgin and the mosaics and Tom notices that the twins are there. The blind twin seems to be looking right at him. He gets angry because he thinks that they're some kind of scam artist. He seems to believe that they actually might be psychic but that they're using their mind-reading powers to pull a fast one, yeah. which is very strange to me. That one would think that, but whatever. Well, it's kind of cool, though, because he's a hybrid skeptic. You know, he's yeah. playing that skeptic role, but he's not entirely dismissive of the whole thing. Yeah, He still suspects their motives, however. Uh, but Laura, she doesn't notice them. So he decides that he should try and get her to go away so she doesn't see them and engage with them anymore. So he says, hey, let's go off the beaten path and go explore Venice. And this was an aspect of the movie that I didn't quite feel in the story is what Venice looks like and how the canals are kind of the roads, but then there are all these little side sidewalks by the buildings and these bridges and all these areas, and it's very twisty and turny. There's all these nooks and crannies and everything seems to be falling apart, and it's a very old, ancient city. In the story, I mean, he, she goes and she describes it a bit, but it doesn't really, to me, convey it. When, I, when you see the movie, because it's all shot in Venice, it, it's, yeah. I mean, you're there. It's, it's amazing. And I've never been particularly interested in going to Venice, but actually after seeing the movie, I was like, wow, that looks kind of cool. It looks really neat. And it's funny because you don't, the way that that city's presented, you don't think about certain things. The fact that they are all waterways, I mean, this sounds dumb, but there's a part where they're taking somebody to an ambulance and it's it's a boat. Yeah. I don't know why that, I, that struck me as so, I'm like, of course the ambulance <laughs> is a boat. But there was just something so odd about that, that you, you know, you got to put somebody on a stretcher and then load them off a dock. Yeah. There's also this music of Eric Zahn aspect uh, to the movie that's not quite present in the story, where some of these old neighborhoods they visit seem to disappear. There are parts where Donald Sutherland was looking for a neighbor, the neighborhood that he was in, and it's just not there anymore. Yeah. That added a level of, of weirdness to the old city. They sit down on a bank, and John throws a rock at a rat swimming in the canal. Laura admonishes him for this, and then she asks do you think Christine is with us now? And he thinks, what is there to say? Is it going to be like this forever? You know? <laughs> like, I could put up with it right now if it's making her happy, but uh, how long is this going to go on? Well, But he answers, I expect so, if you feel she is. Which is good, because it's not really a lie. She's ready to, she's restless. She's like, come on, let's go back. And he's thinking, well, she just wants to find those women again. Hmm. Maybe not even to talk to them, just to be near them, because they're making her feel better. So he's trying to distract her by buying things for her. Right. Says, I'm in a buying mood. What about a basket? You know, we never have enough baskets or some lace. How about lace? (laughs) (laughs) He tries to distract her with uh, some postcards, a headscarf. You know, a few other things. It seems to work a bit. uh, And when they finally get back, the twins are nowhere to be seen. They head back to the hotel and Laura says that it's been a lovely day, one she'll never forget. 
and that she can finally start enjoying their holiday. Back in the room, Tom thinks to himself, now is the night we make love. And he goes to her. She knows what he's thinking. They don't, he doesn't say anything to her. They just lock eyes and then it's magic. (laughs) Well, one could imagine that since this tragedy happened to them, there hasn't been a lot of intimacy. So he's somewhat starved for it. Yeah. And the fact that the psychics cheered her up suddenly makes it an option. Yeah. So they're both very excited about it. They might not have had sex since their daughter died. Yeah. Now this scene in the movie is very long and pretty graphic. This sex scene had cunnilingus. Yes. Which never happens in a mainstream film. No. Part of the reason it's so notorious. For that period, it was fairly notorious. There were censorship issues on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Uh, He cuts the sex scene up with them getting dressed after the sex, getting ready to go out. Yeah. And that was one way, I think, that he was able to avoid it. If you actually look at it, some of the things that seemed explicit, you just see what direction it's going in. Right. And then he'll cut away to Julie Christie putting her shirt on or something. So I think that's how he was able to uh, get away with the censors. But there's there's a lot of rumors about it. There's a whole section on the sex scene if you look on Wikipedia. Oh, like what? Well, there were rumors that it was real instead of being simulated. There were people that said... You know, they were definitely actually having sex. Warren Beatty was dating Julie Christie at the time and apparently flew to London and said he wanted it cut from the film because it was too explicit. Whoa. Yeah, they they had to go through some hoops to keep it in there. I guess the reason that they wanted it in there is because it certainly works to get you more intimate with this couple. Sure. (laughs) You you, you definitely are, okay, I'm in this relationship. But it has some really absurd moments as well. There's this thing where Donald Sutherland's arm kind of hooks over her back. Yeah. Almost like she's making out with his armpit. They're doing some kind of weird yoga stuff in there. It's maybe tantric. I don't know. It's I don't know. I mean, he kind of giggles a little bit. So, you know, odd things do happen during sex. So I thought maybe that was on purpose to... Just show that it's goofy intimacy between two people. What's really strange is at the end of the movie, they flash back to the sex scene. And that's the moment that they choose to look at his (laughs) arm real weird. I was like, what? Yeah, it's very strange. That's the weirdest part of that to flash back to. Yeah, well, I mean, the movie is definitely trying to convey an atmosphere of the weird. And it does a really good job of it. (laughs) It sure does. So after the sex, they decide they're going to go back out on the town. Yeah, he even says, I want to get rather sloshed. So he's looking out to have some drinks. He doesn't want bright lights and music. He wants some small, dark, intimate cave, rather sinister full of lovers with other people's wives. Oh, hey now. So he's he's trying to go into, you know, I think he wants to start the game up again of them watching strangers. Yeah. Enjoying their own company and getting away from the psychic nonsense. They go for a walk and they get a little lost trying to find the restaurant that they're looking for. Right. And this scene in the film was probably the first time I felt really unsettled. There was a lot of weirdness going on. Yeah. When they get lost and then overhear what they're about to overhear, it was genuinely creepy. Yeah. Uh, And like you say, Venice is uh, typically framed as all gondolas and singing, but this really showed the scary side of it. So they hear somebody scream, but John just thinks it's a drunk, or at least that's what he's telling Laura. At least that's what he's telling himself even too, right? Because he doesn't, we we all do that. I don't really want to get involved in this. So I'm just going to assume that screaming is out of joy. The sound sounds like a cry being suppressed, maybe as if somebody's being choked. Laura suggests that they phone the police, but John thinks that she's being being silly. She goes back the way that they came, and John hesitates for a moment, and he sees a small figure creep from a a cellar, a little girl with a pixie hood on her head. She climbs out onto a boat on the canal, and then jumps from boat to boat, and then disappears down an alley. Just then, Laura comes back. Uh, She didn't see the little girl. Now, when I saw this in the the film, Anna read it in the... Well, obviously, I knew what was going to happen at the end, but I thought this was him 
having visions of his daughter. Like they, it's a red coat, like his daughter died in in the film. Yeah. And in this, I think that's also what they're trying to do. They're making you go, okay, he's seeing his daughter now because this idea has been put in his head that she's around by the psychic ladies. I mean, you you got that as well, right? I thought that. Well, you know, that's when I was a little sad that I'd watched the movie first. And that's yeah. the reason you don't want to do that, right? Because I definitely, at this point of the story, would have thought, okay, now he's seeing the daughter. Yeah. And, and, and then in a minute, they, there's some other explanation for that as well. Yeah. And so I think it would have been more effective had I not done that. <laughs> yeah. So she comes back for him and says she doesn't want to go on the streets alone. And then they, they finally find their way to, to some place. It's not necessarily the restaurant they were looking for, but it's a restaurant. Mm. They sit down. They order some wine. When John notices behind Laura, the twin old ladies are there as well. And of course, he thinks that they're following him and Laura. They're up to something. They've got a scheme Laura's busy with the menu, and he hopes that he can distract her from noticing the women. He suggests, you know, they drive out of town for lunch tomorrow, but the whole conversation doesn't work because she spots these women. She's delighted to see them, and she wants to go tell them how happy she, she's she been all day. And John is very annoyed, but, you know, what can he say? True. I think I would be getting pretty upset. I mean, my huckster defenses would be firing on all cylinders at that point. Yeah. Just to keep seeing them in certain places and that they already talked to her while she was in the bathroom. It really seems like they're they're planning something. But yeah, out of uh, sensitivity to his wife's mental state, he doesn't stop her from going. He just decides to sit there alone and get drunk. Mm-hmm. He picks something random off the menu. He's all angry. Uh, he thinks the evening's ruined. What was to have been an intimate, happy celebration would now be heavy laden with spiritualistic visions poured little dead Christine sharing the table with them, which was so damn stupid when in earthly life she would have been tucked up hours ago in bed. She's phony, he thought. She's not blind at all. They're both of them frauds, and they could be males in drag after all, just as we pretended at Torcello. And they're after Laura. And he's definitely firming, the seeing them here is definitely firming up in his head the idea that they're crazy, that they're some kind of uh, criminals. Yeah, so he's annoyed and angry, and he's just getting more and more angry as he's just sitting there drinking Finally, Laura comes back to the table. She says that the blind one had another vision, that Christine told them that they would be in danger if they stayed in Venice. So he thinks, aha, that's their game. They want us out of town. If you think about that, it doesn't really make any any sense. Like, how is that a scam? Well, but you don't ever see, I would just think that's the opening gambit of a con. Because it always seems innocent and like, well, this couldn't possibly be a con because, right, the, the first move in a con. <laughs> so what, they're going to help you get out of town in some way. Maybe you find out there's limited resources and they say, well, why don't we hold on to your valuables while you check this out? Or right. there's some money transfer that follows through or something. Yeah. Know, some kind of suspicious thing. He certainly has that, um, you know, that episode of The Twilight Zone with Shatner on it where they have the fortune telling device on the table. No, I don't know that one. Oh, it's a great one where the it's it's he's a young married couple and their car breaks down. So they have to stop at this diner and it's got a little fortune telling device on the table. You put a penny in and it spits out like a fortune on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. It's got a little devil's head on the top of it, like a bobblehead devil. No, I never saw it. Well, they keep pulling out fortunes and they keep coming true. And pretty soon they're limiting themselves to that table. They they need to, they won't make any decisions until they consult this fortune telling device first. And then Shatner finally says, How, we can't live our lives like this. Don't even look at it. What are we going to do? Have this run our life for us? And they end up walking away. And it's that same moment here where John thinks they think they can run our lives for us. This is to be our problem from henceforth. Do we eat? Do we get up? Do we go to bed? We must get in touch with the twin sisters. They right. will direct us. Yeah. So he thinks maybe that's the scheme. So he tells Laura uh, that he thinks that they're full of it, that they may be psychic, that, but they haven't seen Christine. They're using their psychic powers to take advantage of them. <laughs> Laura argues that they've already seen the best of Venice and that sh- she's going to be obsessing over Christine if they do stay. So like, 
I, I just want to go. Yeah, she says to him, look, why not come over and meet them, and then they can explain about the vision to you. Perhaps you would take it seriously then, especially as you were the one it most concerns. Christine is more worried over you than me. And the extraordinary thing is that the blind sister says you're psychic and don't know it. You are somehow on rapport with the unknown, and I'm not. Oh, man, dude. I told you about that time when I was working at Interspace that the, the psychic dude came in. No. So there was this guy. I don't know who he was. He's some psychic dude. Everybody was excited because he was going to sign some books or do some stuff. And, I, and I'm the resident skeptic of the place. Interspace was the store you worked at where they sold like crystal geodes. And yeah. Music that was supposed to make you feel better and aromatherapy things. Yeah, all that stuff. All that uh, yeah, yeah. woo-woo nonsense. But anyway, <laughs> the guy's a scam. It's BS. And, I, you know, I talked about cold reading. I talked about all these things. I read about like, yeah. I'm sure he, he's not done anything psychic. Like he's done nothing psychic or whatever. So he comes in. Everybody's crowding around him and talking to him. I'm not giving him the time of day because I think he's full of poo right and then he somehow picks up on that so he comes over of course he's like a cat that knows exactly who's allergic yeah and he comes over and he looks at me and he kind of gives this little smile and he, he reaches out and touches my hand and he looks at me and he goes you're sensitive oh no and i said i am my mother had it <laughs> he goes i knew it and then the girl that worked with me she knew that i was totally lying I looked over at her and her face fell because she was she bought it. Oh, right. But in that moment, when she saw that this guy was just BSing me and then I was yeah. BSing him back and he wasn't picking up on it. Right. That she was like, oh, you're right. He's full of crap. Yeah, this guy's full of it. And he was. He wasn't even doing cold reading. He would just say platitudes and stuff. Like, it, was, it was terrible. Horoscope stuff, right? I feel like you have a complicated relationship with your parents. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he saw into my soul. Sometimes you don't feel very confident. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. He knows me. How does he How does he know me? You're having some struggles with your work. <laughs> so anyway, he finally gets all pissy with her, but he says, you know what? If this is what you want, fine. We're going to leave tomorrow. He goes, I'm psychic, am I? Fine. My psychic intuition tells me to get out of this restaurant now at once, and we can decide what we do about leaving Venice when we are back at the hotel. Now, the fact that they did say he had this gift, though, makes you, makes you re- retroactively look back at that child that he was yes that he saw exactly and so you believe oh maybe he is seeing the daughter that they've seen well what they do in the movie is when his daughter is drowning like he jumps up like he senses that she's drowning and he runs out right so that's like another thing that they kind of clue you in that going maybe he he really is thinking yeah john takes off laura says goodbye to the ladies as he stands outside and looks over the canals the experts are right he thought venice is sinking the whole city is slowly dying One day, the tourists will travel here by boat to peer down into the waters and they will see pillars and columns and marble far, far beneath them, slime and mud uncovering for brief moments a lost underworld of stone. Their heels made a ringing sound on the pavement and the rain splashed from the gutterings above. A fine ending to an evening that had started with brave hope, with innocence. When they return to the hotel, they have a message from their son's headmaster at the prep school. Johnny, under observation, suspected appendicitis in City Hospital here. No cause for alarm, but surgeon thought wise to advise you. So Laura says, this is it. This is what the twins were warning us about. Let's go back to England. And that makes perfect sense. At least it satisfies this condition that they have to get out of Venice. Right. Something's wrong with their boy. So that seems like, okay, that's what it was. They were steering us right. Yeah. Let's head back to England. 
And I think that's a good place for us to stop. Yeah, uh, I agree. She is going to head back to England while he hangs around in Venice. And then uh, some very odd things happen that we can cover uh, next week. Yeah, we'll get into the truly weird on our next episode. I want to thank my mother-in-law, Barbara Ford, for being such an excellent reader. Thank you so much for stepping in and giving us some cool reading. Thanks so much. It's so exciting to have you on the show. I also want to thank some of the patrons who support us. I want to thank Scott McCrae. I want to thank Brian James DeMitt. Evan J. Dove. Carl Raid. John Sunser. Shane Lanigan. Matthias Person. Mike Perkins. Andrew Gibson. Duff Huster. And Tim. Thank you, Tim, (laughs) for supporting us on Patreon. Thanks, everybody, for being part of the team. We hope you'll tune in next week for the conclusion of Don't Look Now. With that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to our Weird Women Month on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPLovecraft.com and Patreon. HPPodcraft.com